0: flyover politic podcast the show for normal americans
1: from his undisclosed bunker here's your host tony reed
2: it's friday free for all But it's a free-for-all, and I said you can bet your life. Stakes are high, and so am I. It's in the air tonight. The podcast It's
3: free for all. Hey yeah, it's a Ow. It's, yeah. and welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast. It's a Thursday cuz those who know the show, we record our Friday free for alls on a Thursday. 14th of September year of our Lord 2017. And we got a good one today. You do a little Hillary book a little antifa little Jamel not saying her last name I said I wasn't even gonna say her name yeah that girl over there on SC6 getting away with crazy statements that wouldn't happen if the president was a Democrat <laughs> we're also gonna do a little extended military corner in our news and social media nuggets so before we get into the close loop I want to cover Irma, not going to cover it as deep as it did last time with all the horrible tweets, but I, I do have to do this. Sarah Jaffe, yeah, she's an important person. Good morning. The carceral state exists to protect private property and is inseparable from white supremacy. She says this because during the... Irma, Hurricane, we had looters. They happened to be African-Americans. But in her world, African-Americans who loot are supposed to be like, oh, because of the sins of slavery or racism or whatever. Yeah. So that that was right off the bat, you know. It, it, Patrick Argentine T says, to sum up, looting is just fine as long as you're not a white guy. In that case, private property property matters. Yeah. Politico also came out, as Hurricane Irma approaches, remember that Mother Nature never intended us to live in Florida. And, and this is literally from their article. But White Lamb began to realize that South Florida and real potential if they could figure out how to drain its monstrous swamp. Governor Broward vowed to dig a few canals and create an instant empire, page freeze, sorry about that, By the by the Everglades. A winter garden that could grow food for the world in cities larger than Chicago. Swindlers sold swampland to suckers, turning Florida real estate into a land-by-the-gallon punchline. Pioneers flocked to long-forgotten marshy boom towns with names like Utopia and Hope City and Gladesville. Blah, blah, blah. Basically, got to blame the white man. It's the white man's fault. AP joined them with their craziness. With, a literal tweet, Hurricane Irma exposes racial tensions on Smash St. Martin. Yeah. Didn't even know that. People don't have any goddamn food. We're gonna bring race into it. Rob Reiner, as we send out thoughts, donations, and love to victims of Irma, we must never forget Donald Trump is the worst POTUS in U.S. history. Yes, because we must politicize everything, especially natural disasters, somebody said. <laughs> And rather, will property markets start collapsing in the face of climate change? Oh no. And a Texas clinic is going to raise the Harvey death count by 15. With crowdfunded abortions. That is actually happening. They're crowdfunding. So people in the flood zone, while they're still trying to find shelter, food. Well, you know what? We need to give that human right of abortion. start our close the loop with the. remember we put the the berkeley was already counseling people prior this one's really 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 worse grant stroby snowflakes uc berkeley professor cancels class after students complain about militarized campus for shapiro speech so not is it only they need counseling because the man's going to speak in a tongue they don't understand, which is other than far-left moonbat. Now, because they have to have so much security, because they're so out of hand and a bunch of petulant children who destroy everything they don't like, they're upset about that. Yeah. Okay. So 9-11, um, I have a article. I want to read because I, I agree with it. And a lot of ugly shit. Um, it's to be expected. It's the left. But uh, bear with me on this one. In the long run, 9-11 didn't bring us any closer together. On September 14, 2001, Rocco Guterlea, a retired firefighter in Ground Zero, couldn't hear President Bush, who came to speak to rescue crew. He shouted as much as the president, I can't hear you. Of course, that's what prompted Bush to do his favorite speech, or famous speech. The crowd broke in a chant at USA. At the time, it seemed that the rest of American society did as well. It's still an exhilarating moment to watch, and I can't help but wonder whether it would go down the same way today. Would the deep cynicism so many now have about American history allow such uninhibited display of patriotism to go on without disparagement? Oh, the answer is a big Negatron, Batman. How long before think pieces began pointing out that Islamists are nearly as dangerous or destructive as George Bush or the NRA? How long before pundits start pointing out that killing terrorists is exactly what they want us to do? Well, they kind of already did that one. How long before the president would be accused of Islamophobia or jingoism? How long before thousands would head to Twitter to lay political blame for what it all happened on the other party? Mostly, though, I'm not sure national USA-USA chance would be much more than platitude today. What does it really mean? Pluralism is, of course, a far healthier state of affairs than unity, a word typically used by those interested in squashing dissent. Partisanship can be a healthy reflection of our differences, yet there is to be, a, to be some pivot, some ideal, some collective purpose and understanding of history that the debate revolves around they hate our freedom means nothing when we no longer share a common understanding of the concept of course a lot has this happens since this 11 for starters the justice the brush promoted promised a ground zero result in a protracted and highly disruptive foreign war one that lasted nearly 10 years approximately 6 years longer than the world war 1 whatever you make of Our nation building projects overseas, Americans quickly grew tired of them and then they assisted the rise of a dynamic, progressive president. Barack Obama promised America unification, but in the end demanded conformity. His attempts, first at changing American ideals and then reimagining the ones we had to. port with his progressive positions in turn fueled the rise of an idealistic constitutional movement in the tea party the two movements were irreconcilable and at the age of gridlock ensued by the time we finally eliminated obl american politics had just reverted to fighting over the same old fissures in ideology and culture they had been exacerbated in dramatic ways whereas bush would place a terrorist state like iran in an axis of evil we were now sending them pallets of cash Republicans responded with their own norm-busting president, but one of the most consequentially corrosive aspects of modern politics is that it now envelops nearly everything. Whereas a beautiful or tragic moment might have once give, give us respite for the partisanship, we are no longer afforded such breaks. When a hurricane destroys thousands of lives, Americans come together to help each other. People are still inherently decent. Too many, however, decide to act as Republicans are the cause Of the hurricanes. By the way, uh, Jennifer Lawrence is saying she never said that. That's not what she meant. It was what she meant. People tend to retrofit their memories to comport with the most helpful telling of a story. Perhaps I'm prone to the same revisionism, but as I remember it, everything having to do with the politics pre-9-11 would instantaneously become frivolous once the Twin Towers came down. The day after 9-11, as many days after that, I was unable to commute into my office in Manhattan. The local train station was littered with cars of those who I assumed would never come home. So I sat in the front of my TV staring at cable news most hours of the coming days. For those few weeks, I don't remember anyone ever using the event to bludgeon their political opponent. So here's a depressing thought on the anniversary of 9-11. What if those two or three weeks of harmony 16 years ago will be the last we experience for a very long time? Considering our trajectory, this seems more likely than not. After all, surveying the coverage of the anniversary of 9-11 this morning, it's difficult not to notice that Americans don't really share a coherent, unifying cultural or idealistic value system anymore. You think he's wrong? Here's Slate. Conservatives commemorate the 16th anniversary of 9-11 on Monday. Yeah. Conservatives. David Frum referenced 9-11 spirit 16 years on by speaking about Charlottesville. Charles Johnson, the 9-11 tax were a horrific event in U.S. history, but the election of Donald Trump will be seen as equally disastrous, if not more so. He then doubled down with, I absolutely stand by this. Trump has already destroyed much of what's good about America, and it's getting worse every day. Keith Oberman dogged him for not tweeting, He dogged him at 9 a.m. At 7.40, the White House tweeted a remembrance. Vox, America's sustained fear from 9-11 has turned into something more dangerous. They're talking about a narrative. They reference mind confident. They also had an article, 16 years after 9-11, Al-Qaeda is back and more powerful than ever. But there was some good points. Go to Ari Fleischer's feed. I'm not going to read it. It's over 40 tweets of really inside stuff on that day. It's a timeline. And it's stuff we never knew happened. Some of it's very new. They even readied the Doomsday plane, which I knew existed, but I didn't know it still exists. And it's the serious one, not... Air Force One, this one can handle anything. It is EMP proof. Showed a picture of it on his Twitter feed. But I'll end with something really, I think that is important. I know for me, during the anniversaries of this, because as stated in the last podcast, you know, this changed my life forever, my family's life, my children's life. We were serving. It wasn't just something on TV. Less than a few months later, I was kitting up. I was leaving. By January, I was in Afghanistan, fighting. But I remember I used to always look back on it and watch the documentaries, listen to the people's voices. And from the memorial, somebody tweeted, Hey, Jules, this is Brian. Brian. I'll listen, I'm on a airplane that's been hijacked. If things don't go well, and they're not looking good. I want you to know that I absolutely love you. I want you to do good, have good times. Same with my parents. I'll see you when you get here. I want you to know that I totally love you. Bye, babe. Hope I will call you later. Brian Sweeney, Flight 175. It's a banner. It was at 9:03. I I don't know what went wrong. I have my ideas, and I'll save them for another show. But it's really sad. Because we lost that, and now we have this. That's why it is important to stand up for subtle and blatant homophobia. To fight for our trans brothers and sisters. Their very lives depend on it. They, too have served and are serving our country proudly and with distinction. We have to be the voice of my immigrant brothers and sisters, especially the young ones who know other no other home than America. We have to point out outright bigotry and racism. And as a man of color, I certainly know it when I see it. I can smell it coming. And to make sure that some uninformed people Don't get confused that there are no fine or good Nazis or white supremacists anywhere. And it's not about both sides. That's where we are right now. Yeah, that's Don Lemon. And the DACA thing pretty much sums up our country. Um, I want everybody to realize once again, in 2008 and 2016, Barack Obama didn't care about immigration. We've played it on the show. Didn't care about gay marriage. Didn't care about transgenders in the military. Gays in the marriage. None of this was an issue. And then he just did shit that can be undone because they couldn't legislate it. The next president comes in and overturns it. And with DACA, it's not even overturned. And we have these hysterics and everything's racist. One person goes to Charlottesville and does something wrong. Now everybody's racist, we got to tear everything down. Understand, from my perspective, it the left lasted six months after 9-11, in my opinion. It was about six months and it was over. They were using it as a cudgel. So I, I disagree with that article I read. And this is a huge cudgel. AP, California has filed a lawsuit challenging Trump's decision to end a program that project, protects young immigrants. Young Immigrants, somebody said you're you're missing a world. NARAL, you know it's really bad when even the Pope blasts you on your pro-life hypocrisy. Because he's saying it's not pro-life. Daily Beast, exclusive Russia used Facebook's event to organize anti-immigration rallies on U.S. soil. Now Russia, which isn't working elsewhere, that's the new line this week. Russia is subverting our immigrants. Yeah, those are those little things. I could keep reading a million things, but I, but I won't. It, it's still going. It'll keep going, even though nothing's happened, but you know, okay. We'll still spin it in the news because they need to improve the ratings, which are failing later, later, terribly. Title nine, we've covered it on the show a couple times. Betsy Devos just looking at it. This is actually really bad. Yeah, this, this is really bad. Rob Renko. I'm not wishing for it, but I'd be okay if Betsy DeVos was sexually assaulted. That That's an actual tweet. He's a lawyer. He's employed with Carson Law Firm. And then he had to resign. I thought that was pretty heinous it would make our hate tweets today but it didn't little antifa stuff this is daily caller tim k i don't know about enough about antifa I, i'm only reading that so you understand kane's son's a member of antifa so that's a fucking lie that's a huge lie and shame on you tim kane trump derangement syndrome The short and fraud phase of Trump administration is hitting already. This is a stage some of us have been waiting for. When Trump tacks back to the left, makes nice with Democrats, and sells out his core supporters. A lot of weird stuff's happening this week. I, once again, the deal to prolong DACA for six months was probably smart. The debt ceiling happened. And now Republicans are attacking him mercilessly. Just mercilessly it's almost over the top so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that because that's some stuff that I, I I don't know if he can survive this folks this this is gonna be really bad before we go into segment one and start listening to Hillary blame everybody and act like a petulant little girl. September 11th also is a day that we remember because it was also the day of Benghazi. The CIA tweeted about 30 tweets about the people that died there. And I, I think it's important to remember that, folks. Benghazi, nobody was held accountable for. And four heroes died. And the left and the media has tried to spin it as like some right-wing freaking rallying cry. But uh, I'm not right-wing. I just know that night and everything I've seen on it, including the movie... Which was incredibly accurate. That was horrible. That our government under Obama and Hillary Clinton would do that to people we put in harm's way. Shows how little they value those people. So, I I just wanted to bring it up. To segment one, Hillary's book tour.
2: The
3: I, I'm i just really blown away by all this. The whole media tour and everything. But And, and, and I've been saying I don't want to touch it. But I, I don't really have a choice. It's everywhere. Um, it, it's just everywhere. It's non-stop. It's crazy. Uh, Stacy Dash, who summed up the following paragraph with This is Absolute Arrogance, I think sums it up from her book, this being Hillary's. Since November, more than two dozen women of all ages, but mostly in their 20s, had approached me in restaurants, theaters, and stores to apologize for not voting or not doing more to help my campaign. I responded with forced smiles and tight nods. On one occasion, an older woman dragged her adult daughter by the arm to come talk to me and, uh, and ordered her to apologize for not voting, which she did, head bowed and contrition. I wanted to stare right in her eyes and say, you didn't vote? How could you not vote? You abdicated your responsibility as a citizen at the worst possible time. And now you want to make, want me to make you feel better? Of course, I didn't say any of that. These people were looking for absolution that I just couldn't give. We all have to live with the consequences of our decisions. That's how bitter this were, wor- this woman is. I mean, I'm going to play you sound bites that I, 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 I am in shock. I'm just in shock. She's actually saying things like the media environment is hard for Dems. She's going on straight liberal TV only. She went on the Pod Save America, which is Favreau and all the sycophants. When she was on there... Uh The way this article goes, Clinton was on a Pod Save America podcast on Tuesday as part of our Blame Everyone But Me for Election Loss tour and launched straight into a tirade, scapegoating the media for a loss. The other side is dedicated propaganda channels, said Clinton. That's what I call Fox News. It has outlets like Breitbart and Crazy Infowars and things like that. Clinton then gave some laugh-inducing analysis about how tough it's going to be for the Democrats and the media. I think the Democrats can do a lot. But they're still going to face a very difficult media environment, said Clinton. And we've got to figure out how we're going to break through. So, just for shits and giggles, here's some of the interviews she just did. Now, I'm not going to bore you with Pulling Back 2016. For those who follow the show, I played every one of those. The Chuck Todd, all the lemmings who... Never asked, never pushed, never got more information. It was very vanilla. I'm just going to promote you. And and I could play every soundbite I ever played. That There was no way Trump's winning. It's over. Everybody go home. And I could play how there was a walkout in the DNC convention because they rigged it for Hillary. And that's really the story. The media doesn't want to talk to anybody else. It wasn't Republican voters that beat Hillary. It was Democrat voters who didn't show up because they were pissed off that their fucking election was rigged. Not by the Russians, but by Clinton. But listen to what she's facing now and tell me this is a hard media environment.
4: Another area where... You, you seem to come close to drawing a conclusion, but you stop just at the line as Russia. Right. You say there's right. so many coincidences, so right. many connections between people in the Trump campaign and Russia, but you stop short of saying this, and I'm asking you if you will. Do you think that the Trump campaign, with the knowledge of the now president, colluded with Russia and stole
0: this election? Matt, I can't say that. That's what this investigation uh, is to determine. Lots has happened since then.
4: Has it led you more in the direction it, of collusion?
5: It, it had, I gave birth nine months ago, and afterwards, they, stick, they come to you and they say, how's your pain? Scale to 10, 1 to 10, <laughs> how's your pain? So I, I thought, let's start there. How's your pain? How are you doing? Well,
4: did you view it as a historic document Or did you view it as kind of a literary version of a cleanse for you? You talk about sexism. I do.
5: You talk about misogyny. And I don't have to tell you, as a female in public life, that's something that a lot of female political candidates try not to talk about when they're running for office. And yet, here you are, and you lay it out. I was thinking, this country did elect an African-American president twice. Do you think it's harder for Americans to elect a woman than it is an African-American man?
4: You write in the book about trying to come to terms with this idea that there are a lot of people in this country who simply don't like you—not for political reasons, but it seems more personal reasons. Mm-hmm. At this stage in your life, does even having to ask yourself the question of why hurt?
5: Pert- you were just watching our newscast the other day, and we said—or just a few minutes ago—we say President Trump this, President Trump that. When you hear that President Trump, does it? What visceral reaction do you have? Um, do you
6: give absolution? To, to those who didn't vote, to women who didn't vote?
5: No, I don't.
0: I, I, look, I, I, when it first started happening, it was so soon after the election, and the election was so bizarre and close, it was hard for me to you know, comfort somebody who was coming to me and saying, oh, I wish I'd done more, or I'm sorry I didn't vote, uh, because I think this was one of the most consequential elections that you know we have faced in a long time. So no absolution, but of course... Uh, you know, I just hope people will take what happened this time seriously and be ready and willing to vote the next time. It seems like you've been doing a lot of yoga. Yes, I guess. And, and, and alternate fe- nostril breathing. Well, I wanted to Have ask you tried you. that? Page
6: 27 <laughs> in your book, you talk about <laughs> al- uh, alternate nostril breathing. Yes. What is that? And dare you give me a demonstration well, of that?
0: Well, I would highly recommend it. Okay. You know, I mean, you're supposed to shut your eyes. I don't want to shut, your, shut my eyes on, on, you know, on national television. But, you know, you do hold and you breathe through. One, and you hold it, and then you exhale through the other, and you keep going. I can only say, based on my personal experience, that if you're sitting cross-legged on the yoga mat, and you're doing it, and you're really trying to inhale and hold it, and then have a long exhale, it is very relaxing. So I don't know if you can do it in the middle of hurricane coverage, but maybe some other moments mm-hmm. you can try it. I, uh, I found it quite helpful.
7: I was sure that you were going to win. I mean, let me take you back to so that was night. So I. I. know. I know you are. <laughs> we were so... so joyous. We were talking yes. before about yeah. that night when anxiety started yeah. to get to me, right. and um, and I was positive you were going to win. Everyone was, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when they saw that you weren't, and we showed a picture, I went into mourning. I had a veil. A <laughs> <you know, just,
2: laughs> yeah. This is not yeah, untrue. Is. This is I a true. I had story. a veil.
7: We were, people were crying. Yeah. yeah. We, and yeah. then it was like at a certain moment we were on the air. When I realized that you were not going to win, it was like I felt like I had lost a friend or something. When did you actually connect that point that you were not going to win? Election night. Uh,
0: Was there
5: something that happened?
0: Yes. I mean, and I argue in the book, and I am uh, pleased that other independent uh, analysts have reached the same conclusion. I would have won but for Jim Comey's letter Mm
5: -hmm. on October 28th. Now.
0: say, well, you know, but it was, you know, why would it have been so close? We have close elections. I mean, that is kind of the reality of our politics right now. Um, But that stopped my momentum. And it really did cause enough people to move away from me. Some of them moved to Trump, some moved to third parties, some didn't vote. uh, But the net effect was pretty clear. So I thought that I had gotten through it. I knew it hurt. Mm. I got, had no illusions about that. But as you said, Joy, everybody—not just our analysis or our research—everybody right. was saying the same thing. Trump All himself
5: of thought you were going to win. His yeah. pollsters yeah. and
0: he, because they were seeing the same information we were seeing. So
5: mm.
0: it was—it was a shock. I mean, I—I I can't uh, describe it any other way, uh because. What I thought was going to happen is it would be a close, hard-fought campaign, but I would win. And then I was really looking forward to and had thought a lot about what I would do. So it wasn't until that night that it really hit me when some of the results came in that were contrary to what we and everybody else thought. Did you cry? Did Bill cry? No, <laughs> we, did, we didn't cry that night, let me put it that way, um, because, first of all, I, I say in the book, and I write really painfully about what happened that uh, that night, um, I, I felt like I had to uh, you know, be strong for my family and my friends and my supporters, and I hadn't spent any time thinking about a concession speech, so I had to write one and then go deliver it the next day, and it wasn't until... That was over, and Bill and I got into the back seat of, you know, our car and began to drive that I just felt like, oh, you know, the adrenaline was-
8: Isn't there a dimension here where Republicans who do not have a very high opinion of the government do not mind particularly the feeling that the government is corrupt, that it does not work on your behalf, that it might even work on behalf of special interests, that that is not actually a particular threat to their version of politics, whereas for Democrats who do want people to trust the government, who do want people to have that faith in public institutions, there is a higher bar yeah, for demonstrating and I think, public purity. And
0: I think Democrats, by and large, try to reach it. I mean, Barack Obama took more money from Wall Street in 08 than any Democrat has ever taken and turned around and imposed the toughest regulations under Dodd-Frank since the Great Depression. That's what I tell people that all the time. If you give me money... You will know because I will tell you publicly and privately what I'm for. So if you're in a high income tax bracket, I want to tax you. If you still want to give me money, you are going in with your eyes open.
3: I think for me as a guy who's got his tinfoil hat on for media bias, the most amazing thing about everyone in these uniforms are interviews. It's smiles. And for those who think I'm full of shit, I want you to watch meet the press and you watch uh, This Week or CNN, look, look how the newscasters talk to Democrats and how they talk to Republicans. Watch Morning Joe and see the demeanor and the body language around Democrats and conservatives. You could put that across 2016 election because for the entire thing they were all friends. Most of them were already Clintonites. They'd worked with Clinton campaigns. They'd sucked up the bill. But you know, she says it's a hard environment. Marie Claire, September 13th, Hillary Clinton is more of a president right now than Donald Trump will ever be. Whole article. dogging Trump and then literally saying Clinton, on the other hand, was spreading the word on ways to help victims, writes Valentini. They're using Valentini, a pro-death abortion expert. Simultaneously, the New Yorker, this is the cover we would have published that Hillary Clinton defeated Donald Trump. Her staring at the moon. Katie Turr has a show on MSDNC. The room goes wavy. My stomach churns. I can't feel the, I can feel the bile in the back of my throat. That reaction to Donald Trump winning the 2016 election didn't come from Hillary Clinton's new memoir. It came from the pages of NBC correspondent MSDNC anchor Katie Tour's book about covering the campaign. The Hills Joe Concha read through a copy of Unbelievable in which Tur bemoaned Trump's victory. I've heard him insult a war hero, brag about grabbing a woman by the pussy, denigrate the judicial system, demonize immigrants, fight with Pope, doubt the democratic process, like you're doing right now, but okay. Advocate torture and war crimes, tout the size of his junk and presidential bait, trash the media, and endanger my life. Appearing on Tuesday's Today's Show to hawk the book, Tur similarly described how jarring and scary it was when Trump would criticize her biased coverage during campaign stump speeches. We had to have armed security, she hyped, which is standard practice. Beyond recalling her nausea, Tur also pushed a bizarre fear that Trump would become a lifetime dictator. Does anyone really believe he'll respect term limits? I have a vision of myself at 60, Trump at 100, in some Midwestern convention hall. The children of his 2016 supporters are spitting on me. After expressing her loathing of the president in such detail, does anyone really believe her can be an objective journalist? How can they, they all? Jamel Hill section alone today. Said her name again. God damn it. It's... Unbelievable. But there were some people running some good shit. She snubbed them on the night of her stunning defeat and is now telling the world how she's like Bubba who did the same years ago. Whole articles done. Some Clinton supporters were weeping. Others were wailing. I saw one lying flat on her back bawling silently. In this article, either Hillary Clinton has a terrible memory or she is a shameless revisionist. Her latest book, What Happened, which offers vision of the 2016 presidential election, is a jumble of self-congratulatory and self-pitying anecdotes. She goes to great lengths cataloging all the persons, places, and things that allegedly let her down last year. Clinton also dedicates a significant volume of ink to patting herself on the back for supposedly overcoming various oppressive institutional forces. She boasts often in the book of her steely reserve and even contrasts herself with her husband, Bill, whom she claimed deals poorly with electoral losses. Not he suffered many of them. Losing is hard for everyone, but losing a race you thought you would win is devastating, she writes. She added, I remember when Bill lost his re-election to governor in Arkansas in 80. He was so distraught at the outcome that I had to go to the hotel where the election party was held to speak to supporters on his behalf. A fascinating detail to be sure, but she didn't let it go at that. She got greedy and added, for a good while afterwards, he was so depressed that he practically couldn't get off the floor. That's not me. I keep going. i also stew and ruminate. I run through the tape over and over, identifying every mistake, especially those made by me. When I feel wronged, I get mad, and then I think about how fighting back. To put it politely, the former Secretary of State is full of bunkum. I was at her election victory party last year in New York City when the world learned she lost to Donald Trump. As far as electoral defeats is concerned, Hillary Clinton has a lot more in common with her husband than she apparently cares to admit. It was a little after midnight in November 9, 2016, and I, you couldn't walk two feet without bumping into a crying Clinton supporter. The Democratic nominee staff had booked the Jack, Javits Center for a big victory, celebrating on account of the arena's massive ceiling. Her team was particularly eager to use the building's appearance to send a not-too-subtle message about the candidate's impending historical accomplishment. They thought they had an election in the bag. Hell, with the exception of a select few, nearly everyone in the media and political circles thought Clinton had it in the bag. Remember, this was written by a Democrat. I was in New York City on election night because I was covering the Democratic nominee. Clinton was my assignment most 2016. Before November 8, I would have told you she had a real problem connecting voters. I also, would have told you she did herself no favors by repeatedly dodging legitimate questions about serious scandals and apparent conflicts of interest. Even in those obvious shortcomings, I also would have told you she was probably going to win. After all, she enjoyed every conceivable advantage. She had more money. She had deep-rooted network of donors. She had popular support of the U.S. press. She had a backing of a unified political party. She had the enthusiastic support support of two popular presidents, and she had endorsements from seem like every major player in the entertainment industry, newspaper industry, and mayors. True, Clinton was dogged throughout the election by scandals of her own making, but it was hard to imagine those things could outweigh her opponent's own scandals and unpopularity. Even before ten twenty one. When Trump was announced a projected winner in Ohio, the numbers looked terrible for Clinton. She wasn't anywhere close to where she needed to be, and the GOP candidate was gaining steam. I made my way to the upper level of the convention center around 11 p.m. to cover the election night crowd, which was compromised of campaign volunteers, Democrat loyalists, and other diehard supporter. The thing I noticed immediately when I stepped past the security checkpoint was a number of people who were already making for the exits, despite the fact that neither candidate had conceded defeat. It wasn't even midnight yet. This has never been told, boys and girls. That's why I'm reading it. Some supporters remain in the bleachers, which were set up around the stage, made to look like the United States. Well, she couldn't take the Parthenon look that the anointed one did. Others milled about in the open arena, Near the risers, the Clinton faithful were waiting for some last-minute miracle for the DNC candidate. Midnight came and went. The miracle didn't come. It would never come. The event organizers eventually switched off the convention center massive monitors, which were broadcasting live coverage of the election result. An image of Clinton campaign logo soon replaced the spot where the anchor's face used to be. Clinton organizers pumped upbeat pop music in the arena. No one in the thinning crowd looked upbeat. The screens were switched off, but we still had cell phone reception. I checked the election results at 12.57 a.m. on November 9th and saw that Trump was projected winner in Pennsylvania. It was over. The real estate mogul was the president-elect. Others in the center soon received the same information, which turned the mood into arena from sad to downright miserable. Though it wasn't yet official, many of those Clinton supporters knew she had lost the 2016 election. They were distraught. I've never seen so many crying adults in one place. I've attended many funerals. Some Clinton supporters were weeping. Others were wailing. I saw one lying flat on her back, bawling. Not silently. After Ohio and Pennsylvania were called for Trump, the only thing left to do was to wait for the nominee to personally deliver a concession speech from the convention center. Word went around soon that she was en route from her election night viewing party, which was hosted in a nearby hotel, Hillary Clinton never showed. She never even left her hotel room. We were told Podesta was coming, but we didn't know if he was gonna concede. Nearly one hour later at two oh five, Podesta mounted the stage, attended for his boss. He stood there surrounded by the contingent of teary eyed supporters, some of whom were still holding out hope for a miracle, and urged everyone to remain determined. Podesta told the crowd to keep their chins up, and he vowed the campaign would continue to fight on. The Clinton campaign ultimately mounted no such counterattack. At around 2.35 the same morning, approximately 10 to 15 minutes after Podesta told everyone to go home, Hillary Clinton called Trump and conceded. She never spoke directly to her supporters and never got the in-person pat on the back concession speech, thanking them for their work. She snubbed them on the night of her stunning defeat. There is virtually no daylight between how the Clintons handled their respective defeats. If we're to believe what the former secretary wrote about her husband and what happened, both candidates suffered defeat. Both abdicated their concession responsibility to someone else. That's just one part of the book. Granted, nobody, nobody's going to do everything in the book. But this one ends with, at any rate, neither option reflects well on her. And that's likely the exact opposite of what she set out to accomplish with this 500-plus page, page exercise in saving face. This book is already slashed 40% at Amazon and Walmart. It's being sold for seventeen ninety nine. The Daily Wire. Watch. Hillary so cocksure of victory, she bought second home next door for White House staff. In that thing, she's talking about alternate nose breathing, because that's how she made it through losing. Yeah. 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 But you still have the cult of personality. You still have it. Steve Marmel. On nine twelve. my feed will be dedicated to and only for amplifying women. Can you do the same? Hope so. As Hillary Clinton's book is released and people want to silence her and her followers, I will do otherwise. Amplify women. What happened? The effort to silence female voices on Twitter is relentless. So on nine twelve, I'm going to just listen and amplify women. Those are all hashtags. Political coverage, iPhone coverage, jokes. Our respect to hashtag What Happened. I will, without comment, only of amplify women. Dudes, join me. The Hill, Hillary, time to exit the stage. Shown is the author. The Democrats need a unifying message, a focus on economic growth, tax reform, ideological tolerance, and most importantly, an agenda that focuses on traditional values and religion as a positive force. To win in areas of country like the Midwest, Democrats do not need star athletes, Hollywood celebrities, and they certainly do not need Hillary Clinton. It is time for her to step off the stage, find something productive to do, and stop pointing fingers. But the media loves her. Time. First interview. She barely blames sexism, Comey, and Russia. All the questions are horrible. Another interview. Clint blames Comey, Russia, WikiLeaks, Facebook, face, fake news, voter ID laws, sexism, and misogyny. Washington Examiner. Hillary Clinton rips New York Times with shoddy reporting on email scandal. The former Democratic presidential candidate describes feeling confused about the New York Times decision to endorse her while also beating me up about emails. We proved it in the podcast, folks. She, they, they, they broke the story, but they didn't beat her up. Getting beat up is Abu Ghraib above the fold for 120 days. When they do that to you, Democrats, come talk to me about how the media environment's bad. The Times, as usual, played an outsized role in shaping coverage of my emails throughout the election. Clinton wrote, to me, the paper's approach felt schizophrenic. Clinton admitted her choice to set up a private email server was a dumb decision that helped cost her the election. Clinton expressed outrage that New York Times dedicated half its front page to Comey, October 28th letter, Because she argued the letter contained zero evidence of wrongdoing and very few facts of any kind. But NPR. This is their interview. I'm not going to listen to this addled school child whimper and moan. So I won't read her replies. Are women voters who didn't vote for you guilty of sexism? That's question one. Two. Were you a doomed candidate from the get-go? Why would it have, if it have ever gotten to the point where something like comey louder could have shifted so many opinions? Why was it ever that tenuous? I mean, you say in the book, American elections are about change, and they're about the future, or some combination thereof. And for many people, you're about neither. Did your candidacy have an irreparable flaw from the beginning? Okay, that's a good question. Number three. Can another Democrat have beaten Donald Trump? I'll give him props for that. What about Democrats who want you to just go away? Although you say you still want to roll and shape the Democratic Party of the future, you're still going to talk about the issues you find to be important, but there are some Democrats out there saying that you they, they don't want you to do that. The writing, this book, is opening old wounds, relegating a past, and it doesn't help move the party forward. Have you reconciled that the people might not want you around as the party steps forward? Number five, didn't you run like you were entitled to the nomination? See, NPR's getting a little balls on them. Six, did familiarity with you and Bill breed contempt? Simultaneously, Hillary Clinton claimed her new book, What Happened?, the t-shirts were severed head on them with her severed head were on sale at the GOP convention. Yasher Ali, who we covered and is no way any kind of a conservative. HRC mentions a Kathy Griffith scandal and says that RNC convention people were selling t-shirts with their severed head and no one said a word. Daniel Dale, a liberal. I inspected anti-Clinton merchandise very hard in 2016. I didn't see any such t-shirt around the ARNC. Certainly not in the convention center. So that has something to do with it? But, while print media and the internet might be starting to tire of her, here is Vox with Ezra Klein. It's rather long. Listen to this person on the back side. I want you to just answer the simple question. Have you ever seen a losing candidate nine months or ten months after losing, go on a book tour, the book tour is about her losing, and sound this fucking bitter?
0: Secondly, I don't think I'm held to the same standard as anybody else. I believed that... If I were to say, let's do, um, you know, uh, what, let's say a carbon tax, let's do single payer tomorrow, let's do whatever it is that might be viewed as universal and inspiring or whatever. Unlike either my primary opponent or my general election opponent, who were never pinned down except in one case in the primary with respect to uh, Senator Sanders, I I would have been hammered all the time. Like, okay, well, how are you going to do that? And how are you going to pay for it? And where's the money going to come from? And if I had said, we're going to leave it to the legislative process over here. They'll figure it out. People would have said, well, you've been around. You know how it works. How are you going to do that? You don't have 60 votes. You're not, I mean, I think I would have been hit with a thousand different legitimate questions. And I think I would have felt an obligation to answer. So finally, you know, I do think policy matters. And I think where I came out, really made sense for the country, made sense for a Democratic uh, candidate. Um, but it was hard to compete with, you know, just the, the, the big claims and the assertions that I got from, you know, both sides. And maybe I could have been, in fact, I'm sure I could have been somewhat more adept at trying to maneuver through that so that i got the benefit of saying here's what we're going to do i thought saying look we're going to get the universal coverage because that's my goal we're at 90 percent now i think getting from 90 to 100 is a lot easier than starting over i mean i thought that made sense to people and i think in the end a lot of people who were going to vote for me uh believe that but you know that that's what you do when you take a retrospective like what could i have done differently is that a critique i i i I understand that critique, Um, but I don't think the press did their job in this election, with very few exceptions. So the hard questions about what was real and what was realistic and what could happen with the right kind of election outcome were never really joined. And so, you know, I found it frustrating, obviously, because I think I could have defended and lifted up, a lot of what I believed we could do. But really, Ezra, when you get 32 minutes in a whole year to cover all policy, how does that work? And you compare it even with 08, where you had 200 minutes on broadcast TV, you think, well, is it that people are really not interested, or is it that it's just not as, uh, you know, enticing, to the press because the other guy's running a reality TV show, which is, like, hard to turn away from. And whatever he says, we think is kind of goofy, but, hey, it's good TV. And she's over there saying, okay, here's how we're going to raise taxes on the wealthy, and here's what we're going to do to close loopholes, and here's where I think I can do it. And, eh, you know what, she's going to win anyway. So let's cover the other guy because he's a lot more fun. And I think... In, in addition to everything you say, which I think is, is, is fair and needs to be uh, considered, it was such a difficult environment even to have that conversation. So who could tell what was or was not realistic? It was, you know, kind of all, all bets were off uh, in the coverage of the campaign. A
8: little bit to the 2016 election and what happened. As mm, the, what happened? The, the subject of the book.
0: My book, yes.
8: There is a premise that I that is not really articulated one way or the other book, and I want to see where you fell on it. Mm-hmm. Was Donald Trump more or less a normal Republican candidate who one should have expected to begin with 42, 44 percent of the vote? And so you're just explaining how did a Republican candidate win the election? Mm -hmm. Or is Donald Trump an abnormal candidate who you should have expected to begin with 30, 35 percent of the vote? And so you have to have this very large explanatory leap to how he came close enough to actually win. What are you explaining
0: I think, given the hyper-partisanship in the country right now, once he became the Republican nominee, the odds were very high that Republicans would come home to him as their nominee. Because regardless of what he said or how he behaved or what came out about him, uh, he was their path to tax cuts. He was their path to a Supreme Court seat. There is an agenda on the other side that really does motivate the right. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, something like 90 percent of Republicans voted for him and 90 percent of Democrats voted for me. That's unfortunate in lots of ways. I wish we weren't in such a hyper partisan political era. But that's what I always expected. I always thought the election would be close. I never was one of those people who said, oh, my gosh, he's so unacceptable and this, that. I, I always thought it would be close. Um, I didn't expect to be totally ambushed at the end, which is what I believe and obviously have written about it, uh, cost me the election. Um, but I always thought it would be close. It's not like there was going to be some... Wholehearted rejection of Trump by Republicans who frankly thought they could handle him.
8: Who wins a party primary and parties no longer have control of their mm-hmm, primaries.
0: Mm-hmm.
8: Anybody who wins a party primary begins within spitting distance of winning the presidential election. Abs-
0: I-, I believe that.
8: Does that mean we're more vulnerable to, to demagogues, yes. to dangerous candidates, to authoritarians yes, than we've been we in the are. past?
0: Yes, we are, Ezra. I mean, if I had lost to what I guess we could call a normal Republican, one of the other 16 people on the stage during their primary. Jim Gilmore. Well, somebody that might have been able to win. Um, look, I would have been disappointed. I would have been upset and heartbroken. But uh, first of all, I don't think it would have happened. But secondly, if it had happened, I wouldn't feel such a sense of anxiety about the country. I'm
8: sorry, can I stop you there? Yeah. That, that was interesting what you just said. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Donald Trump was a stronger candidate than the other Republicans? Yes. You would have beat the others, but you didn't beat him.
0: Well, I don't want to speculate like that, but I think the fact he emerged and the way he emerged, which was so unlike anybody ever getting a nomination in recent times, uh, demonstrated the strength he had, which was really rooted in a very cynical assessment of how he could build a Republican, uh, majority. He started on the very first day, you know, saying terrible things about Mexican immigrants, you know, that they're, they're, they're rapists and criminals. And all of a sudden people, you know, in the, uh, Republican side of the electorate began to say, Oh, somebody's speaking to me. And then he went on from there and all of his dog whistles and all of his appeals uh began to coalesce in the primary uh and then once he won the nomination uh he had some additional advantages like russian help and and you know sophisticated data analytics operation weaponizing information all of that um but he, his core base and he was he was right when he said i could shoot somebody in the middle of 5th avenue my supporters won't leave me Because he was, in a visceral way, feeding into their prejudice and paranoia.
8: That's an argument that Donald Trump was stronger than other Republican candidates because he was willing to play white resentment politics in a way that others weren't. Is that a fair reading of what you just said? I think
0: that's part of his appeal, yes. And he was willing to play, let's not forget, Islamophobic politics, homophobic politics, sexist politics. I mean, he hit every single area of resentment and grievance that people were feeling. And his racism, which was endemic to his campaign, uh, wasn't subtle at all. Uh, And there's now been so much analysis done since the election demonstrating clearly that you know, so-called cultural slash racial anxiety and prejudice was the primary driver for a lot of his support.
8: One way of reading the election results Mm -hmm. is that Donald Trump, through these appeals, was able to get white voters to act as an interest group, to coalesce them in a way they had not recently been coalesced, to motivate them, particularly downscale whites, in a way they had not recently been motivated. That didn't happen as much with women voters. Um, you talked about watching the women's marches after mm-hmm. the election and thinking, where was this solidarity? Where was this outrage during the campaign? Why do you think that politics worked for Trump, but you didn't see a corresponding surge, particularly among female voters?
0: Well, you? let's well let's start with this fact though. I did carry the women's vote.
8: You did carry the women's vote. Right.
0: I lost the white women's vote, but I actually got more white women votes than Obama got. So this was part of a- trend. In, 20, in 2008? In, it, I think, I can't remember, it was 08 or twelve. yeah. And so white voters have been fleeing the Democratic Party ever since Lyndon Johnson predicted they would. There is no surprise to that. Of course I hoped that I could get more than a traditional Democratic nominee did because I was the first woman with a chance to be president. But gender is not the motivating factor that race was for President Obama. And so many women, uh, and let's talk about white women, because that's the group of women that I lost, um, are really quite uh, politically dependent on uh, you know, their view of their own security and their own position in society, what works and doesn't work for them. So as I say in the book, I had this really revealing conversation with Cheryl Sandberg before the campaign, and she's immersed herself in every bit of research about how do women think and what do they expect. And she said, look, and we're talking predominantly about white women. Okay, she said, the research is really clear. The more professionally successful a man becomes, the more likable he becomes. The more professionally successful a woman becomes, the less likable she becomes. When a woman is advocating on behalf of others or working for someone and working hard for that person the way i did as a secretary of state when i was so popular uh in the public opinion polls that is favorably received by people but when a woman advocates for herself so if i go and say to vox you know i think ezra deserves a raise people say
5: boy is she a
0: good person. I mean, she's out there advocating for Ezra. If I go and I say, you know, I think I'm working really hard and I think I deserve a raise. It's like, wow, what got into her? What's the deal? So Cheryl ended describing all this to me by saying, remember, they will have no empathy for you. Now, I believe absent Comey, I might have picked up one or two points among white women. I'll give you the example I use in the book. So before the Comey letter on October 28th, I was 26 points ahead in the Philadelphia suburbs. That could have only happened if I had a big vote from women, Republican women, independent women. A week later, uh, 11 days later, I win the Philadelphia suburbs by 13 points. I needed to win by 18 points to be able to counterbalance the rest of the state. That wasn't just me. That's how Democrats win Pennsylvania in presidential campaigns. It stopped my momentum, and it hurt me particularly among women. And I have so much anecdotal evidence for this. And now researchers are starting to pull some of this together. You know, all of a sudden the husband turns to the wife. I told you, she's going to be in jail. You don't want to waste your vote. You know, the boyfriend turns to the girlfriend and says, she's going to get locked up. Don't you hear? She's going to get locked up. I mean, all of a sudden it becomes a very fraught kind of conflictual experience
3: I listened to all 56 minutes of that bullshit and it was really hard because she is very unbecoming. And though I may have doubts about Trump, I, I tell you, I was really glad by the end of that 50 minutes that I did not vote for her and that she did not become president. This is the most arrogant, self-serving bullshit. When we talked about it with the Clinton Foundation, their lifestyle, the books that they've already written, she didn't need money. Not with $250,000 to 500000 a pop Goldman Sachs speeches, where she said she was with them while she campaigned against them. The facts remain the same. This is about her trying to stay relevant in a time where she's no longer relevant. And mark my words, boys and girl, the media is going to say things like, maybe Hillary should run. Maybe Hillary should keep running. People wouldn't vote for Trump again. She's the most qualified candidate ever. But within this disgustedly dark and horrible cave that smells like hubris, there are a few. S.E. Cup, who's on CNN, did a mocking reading. And Greg Gutfeld did a Tony Reed on The Five which got sent to me via email this morning from a friend, and it's fucking awesome. So we'll close the Hillary book tour on these two people ranting and go to a very short segment, too, which is about the Portland Antifa.
5: Hillary holds nothing back in her airing of grievances, except maybe some self-awareness. As a matter of fact, you may say, what happened? Reads like a clinical look into Clinton's five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. Usually people go through the stages alone or with the help of medical professionals, but for whatever reason, Hillary Clinton has decided to force millions of American readers to travel her grief spiral with her. Um, well, I have the book. We got it. It's called What Happened? Andy, do you feel up for a dramatic reading?
9: I think if
4: anyone knows anything about me is that I'm always up for a dramatic reading.
5: I do know that about you, yeah. and so am I. Yeah. Um I thought because this is such a um sort of cathartic process sure. uh if if you read it, we'll put on our little yeah. psychologist. Oh, there we go, we'll see, make sure the mic is still good. Okay. <laughs> Ready? This is good for our dramatic reading. On to depression. <clears throat> Bill was watching Trump's speech on television. He couldn't believe it. Neither could I. Eventually, everyone left, and it was just us. I hadn't cried yet, wasn't sure if I would, but I felt deeply and thoroughly exhausted, like I hadn't slept in 10 years. Same. We lay down on the bed and stared at the ceiling. Bill took my hand, and we just lay there. You know, if there was one thing that could make this book more painful to read... It's the image of Hillary Clinton and her philanderer husband lying side-by-side side holding hands in bed. At least they're holding Thanks hands. Thanks for that. I actually hadn't heard yet, yet and I'm, I'm wincing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's... It's pretty painful. Again, like I said, if you're tuning in and wondering what the hell we're doing, we are doing a dramatic reading of Hillary's book, a.k.a. The Five Stages of Grief. Like, should you have gone to Wisconsin? Yeah. She goes, oh, well, we campaigned there. She sent Tim Kaine and her husband there. That's not the same.
9: Yeah, Tim Kaine definitely doesn't oh. drive the vote. Uh, Greg. Bill in the doghouse again. When, when, <laughs> when you see Hillary out there, and she is doing a great job promoting this book, it, it kind of reminds everybody, I believe, why they didn't want her. As president, because she's not a leader.
6: Uh, no one has made more off losing than Weight Watchers. I mean, <laughs> she's like she beats Weight Watchers, the Washington Generals, you name it, the Cubs. Uh, she's like the back of an old stamp. Oh she's bitter and she can't get the job done. Ooh, no, I, you know I can't be nice. It's still to her. sticky though. I, yeah, I can't. I can't be nice to her after hearing what she just did. You know, the things that she just said is essentially she just did the deplorables all over again. Double down. She just dismissed yeah. an entire group of people as racist, homophobic, Islamophobic. she her, her slogan should go from I'm with her to I'm withered. <laughs> because she's past her sale date. You know, and her book tour is essentially saying, this is what you get. More of me. Mm-hmm. It's like, the, I, I'm, I, I, this is your punishment. Because you didn't vote for me. Right. I'm going to your town. Maybe she will go to Wisconsin. If she can sell books there sell the now, books. she'll go. She's like a reverse ice cream truck. Oh, yeah. You know what? Nobody's running out to chase her. They're all climbing behind the windows and peering out the out the out the at the, out the, out the, uh, the uh, blinders. Is she gone? I just I just find it very depressing and sad. She's one. She's not tired of
5: herself. Like that's the thing. She's like, listen, I got something else to tell you, and another reason why.
6: <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just I I don't know. It's like I kind of was like, hey, maybe this is kind of interesting. But after listening to that. Weird, stilted, manufactured in front of a back, weird background of her unloading this litany of like, race cards, Islamophobic card, homophobic card. I go, you know, who needs it? Who needs it? This is, right. this is not good for the country. Right. This is why she lost. Shut
10: up and go away. Wait a second. So, in other words, it be a, if, 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 if she calls Hansen out now? Trump and says Trump played to those, back what she said was kind of interesting to I me. Mean, she said, no other Republican. He was the leading Republican because other Republicans would not play the race card, wouldn't yeah, go after, uh, you know, the Mexicans and homophobic and Islamophobic. And yeah. you're saying, Oh no, that didn't happen and she shouldn't mention
6: Yeah, she, I don't really, she can't come up with one example of homophobia. The guy was for gay marriage before Obama was. But you know who she is? She is exactly like Michael Scott of The Office. Yeah. Remember Michael Scott? Oblivious to the flaws that are on display for everybody. When he walks into the office, he thinks he's got it made and everybody's going, oh my god, he's so resistible. She <laughs> is so resistible, but she's got, she, her entire life is a blind spot. Right. She cannot see the air. Well, the, the, the men she chose in her life, from Bill Clinton to to, to keeping Wiener around yes. through, her, through her friend. I mean, these I are mis- not- these are massive yeah. mistakes that she refused to acknowledge. It's just when you
9: see it like this, you go like, again, go away. I guess that makes um, Tim Kaine Dwight Schrute. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <He's seen laughs> nicely oh, done. She ruined his career,
5: too, to be honest. So. He's done, unless he's like backup harmonica. Or something. I mean, he plays harmonica.
1: Existed. What's the Holocaust? Oh. So you, that's what happened.
2: No, you
7: you 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 now you lost any credible argument ground right well, there. So,
1: because I'm because I'm not as Go well Go there worked.
7: and look. You can still look at the ovens
5: well, in there. the camps.
7: Okay? Point have you ever been over there? there was about
1: have trouble. I been to Germany?
7: Yeah. Have you ever been in a, in a concentration camp memorial site... Have
2: you? Yeah. So
7: you've seen it. the oven. I mean, so what did, what did they I use them the for? What did they
2: use the barracks for? This I is. Cre- I
1: think he Hey, I'm I'm not a bad guy, people. I'm really not. You big Jeremy Christian fans over there.
9: You know we don't take too kindly to your kind coming down here to our city and slashing our residents' throats. So you can get the fuck out. Yeah.
2: If we're going to defend, defend ourselves, ourselves. Oh. you got another thing coming. Fuck you! Fuck you! This is the go police area. The area of Seamus is not a protest area. Go needs to be kept open. Nassie, go home! Nassie, go home! No No! No!
3: So those were protesters in Portland. Uh, Patriot Prayer is somehow a racist group now in Portland. And they're shutting it down. They were on It's Going Down, Anonymous Contributor. Rose City Antifa, Portland Stands United Against Hate, a coalition of 70-plus Portland area organizations, Queer Liberation Front, and hundreds of other Portland area residents joined together to stand against a group, Patriot Prayer, a group known for collaborating and marching with white supremacist, neo-Nazis-affiliated groups. Patriot Prayer also marched with Jeremy Christian, who later murdered two in a racist attack and injured another on Portland Max Light Rail System. Portland police, under threat of arrest, kept protesting at protesters at bay so Patriot Prayer could enter the waterfront park un contested after protesters broke down barricades. Patriot pair members were told by Portland officers to leave the area for their own safety. During the melee, police made several arrests, including a particularly brutal one, where officers pulled the victim's hair, shoved her face on the sidewalk, and made it difficult for her to breathe. One officer shoved a legal observer working with National Lawyers Guild backwards over bicycles after noticing him documenting the brutal arrest on his cell phone. After the arrest that finished, Portland stands united against hate and local labor unions led a march through downtown beginning with the chant, when people do color when people of color are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. And continue with Nazis out, Nazis out. Both chants aimed at white supremacists. They just chased out of town. Patriot pair later traveled to a rallied and rallied in Vancouver, Washington, where a partic- participation in the rally tried to run down protesters with a struck close call as was of the murder by our white nationalists in Charlottesville last month. Da 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 da. So Portland police are purging their gang database because there aren't enough white gangs. It's another article that was side by side by this, because they're proud of that, that gangs are good to go. And then the Portland police release pictures of these Antifa people without their mask. One is a guy dressed as a girl. One is an illegal immigrant, one's a Caucasian male, one is an illegal immigrant, two are lesbians. Those are the pictures. That's what was released. So now they're stopping people just from praying. And during this last week, Antifa gets airtime from Vice... Antifa still doesn't care what the media thinks. In the Trump era, white supremacist rallies have become increasingly menacing and prone to violence, and Antifa activists are saying that the police can't be trusted to keep counter protesters safe unless they're alt right. That activists say is how one should view the most much publicized moment of violence at the protest last month at Berkeley. We felt we were going to have to rely on ourselves, says so Sarah Kushner from the National Lawyers Guild, We're roughly 50 legal observers of the protest. Though the left has come under fire for high-profile incidents of antifile aggression in conversations with activists in the Bay Area, where I've covered protests since 2013, none were concerned about negative portrayals in the media. Statues of Christopher Columbus were being doused with red paint long before America's decided for a couple weeks that every Confederate statue and monument had to be taken down and hauled away overnight or covered with tarp. The momentum out of Charlottesville seemed to motivate people to revisit statues and memorials that had nothing to do with the Confederacy. The nation's longest standing monument to genocidal terrorist Christopher Columbus was smashed in Baltimore and in Ohio, a statue of Revolutionary War colonel was beheaded for reasons that mystified a lot of its residents. Who's next? Los Angeles has voted to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous People Day. Somebody said, now we can just get rid of all the statues of Juniper Sarah. Bring down all false idols to white supremacy. Juniper Sarah statue beheaded at Old Mission. Happened right after that tweet. James Wood covered it. Juniper Sierra statue beheaded, splashed with red paint. How progressive. I feel like we're living in a time of Vlad the Impaler. Dritt the Kid tweeted. That took me five minutes on Google. It's not all-encompassing. It doesn't cover all the statues that have been vandalized. It doesn't ca- cover all the antifile protests just in Portland. But every podcast, I must cover the menace That is Antifa. Because fascism will come to America cloaked in the form of anti-fascists. And it's happening all over the country. Keep your head on a swivel. Because unfortunately, unless you're blatantly gay, transgender, or a minority, these people hate you, even though they look just like you to a music break (laughs) and the segment I've actually been looking forward to for two days ESPN's
7: Media Bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reid.
3: Okay, many years ago I stumbled across a TV show on ESPN one day. I, I, I think I did it by accident when I was driving and it was Jacobian and Smith. And almost every show, it was like Stephen A., it became kind of social, it wasn't really a, it just wasn't a fucking show, I mean, it, was, it wasn't It was a sports show. And then when they had the big blow-up, the reality was, and the blow-up being that, you know, I guess I'm not speaking in English right now, because I'm trying to fight a fucking cat away while I'm trying to do my podcast, um... You know, social media was pissed because they did all the firing and lost a hundred good people, guys that were great, and these two morons stayed. And there's even articles. Social media is angry, is ESPN for firing everybody at not firing Jamel Hill and Michael Smith. And then I start seeing this hashtag #SC6, Brady Stewart. Jamel, you are extremely racist towards white people. Your career is based off vile hatred and race baiting. You are the problem. Charlie Morrell. Jamel Hill is a diversity hire, nothing more. Every show she's been on has tanked and moved time slots in hopes it will still work. Hashtag SC6 equals disaster. Another gentleman. Uh, Jamel Hill's entire career is based off race baiting and hate mongering. She is top 10 most racist people in the U.S.A. And the last one was a gif, SC6, hashtag SC6, with the gif of a garbage fire. It was actually a dumpster on fire, which is really fucking funny, I thought. And I didn't know what was going on. As I can prove with this now. For you lefties out there, I don't go to the Daily Caller and I don't go, you know, I go to Drudge just to get cool stories, you know, that we put on the show that are mostly for news and social media nuggets. So I didn't see this break. And then I saw it tweeted by somebody in my feed. ESPN anchor, Donald Trump is a white supremacist. Article by Derek Hunter. ESPN has been its fair share of political controversies lately, including the removal of a college football play-by-play announcer because the last name was Lee. Mm-hmm. We covered that on the show. The network has encouraged her personalities to be political in their commentary, and Jamel Hill, who's a co-host of 6pm Sports Center, appears to have taken this encouragement to heart when she called President Trump a white supremacist Monday night during a Twitter rant. ESPN recently fired 100 employees due to impart its sinking ratings, some attributes to the creeping politics from the personalities. This latest event, documented below, likely won't help the trend. Now, before I read this, remember Mike Ditka, who was the sole. Okay, okay, Boomer was another one. But Mike Ditka and Boomer, the only ESPN shows I've ever watched. I'm not a Sports Center guy. I didn't care. So I would watch NFL primetime, which doesn't exist anymore, and NFL countdown. Because I loved watching Mike Ditka. I can just picture him with a cigar in his hand, even though they couldn't smoke on the set. But remember, he said Barack Obama wasn't a great president and said that he was voting for Trump and he was fired. Kirk Chilling said something. Fired. Anybody with a conservative bent made the cut in the 100, and was fired. This is her tweet tirade. Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. The height of white privilege is being able to ignore his white supremacy because it's of no threat to you. Well, it's a threat to me with some peace symbols in her twined in there that make no sense to me because I'm not an emoji guy Trump is the most ignorant offensive president of my lifetime his rise is a direct result of white supremacy period he has surrounded himself with white supremacists no they aren't, are not alt-right and you want me to believe he isn't a white supremacist no the media does not make it a threat it is a threat he has empowered white supremacists see Charlotte Phil How is it a false narrative? Did he hire in court white supremacists? Answer, yes. You just don't want to believe it because it's too unpleasant, but but that doesn't change the facts. Unbelievable she didn't put white supremacists in that one. But she fixes it later. He's unqualified and unfit to be president. He's not a leader, and if he were not white, he never would have been elected. Well, There's a white in there. Donald Trump is a bigot glad you could live through, live with voting for him i couldn't because i cared about more than just myself i hate a lot of things but not enough to jeopardize my fellow citizens with an unfit bigoted incompetent moron but hey that's just me she then retweeted he's a white supremacist again and said and it's funny how you cling to benghazi but i bet you didn't care one th- give one thought to what trump said about the central park 5 you yell about him in Benghazi, but I bet you didn't care at all about him having to settle the largest racial housing discrimination in New York City. I, I just want that to percolate. Could anybody have done just a few of this? Uh, but let's just redo the first one. Barack Obama is a black supremacist who has largely ass- sur- sur- surrounded himself with other black supremacists. Barack Obama is an Islamist. He has surrounded himself with people from the Muslim Brotherhood, which he actually did. Anybody get away with that? Keep the job? Should a sports anchor be doing that is my second question. Clearly, ESPN doesn't think so. The comments on Twitter from Jamel Hill regarding the president do not represent the position of ESPN. We have addressed this with Jamel and she recognized her action were inappropriate. Some people said they put her in timeout for 10 minutes. Weakest statement I've ever seen. For a break before her response, understand that their show is a huge bust. As ESPN desperately tries to retool itself in the face of liberal hectoring, falling revenue, crashing ratings, and a loss of million viewers, which is more now, it's 12 million subscribers. The cable sports network launched what might be perfect politically correct show, but three months in, SC6 with Michael Smith and Jamel Hill is still a reigning loser. After years of complaints by Republicans and conservative viewers who feel that ESPN has become the home of liberalism instead of sports analysis, ESPN continued to drive leftward, and its replacement for SportsCenter was these dickheads. SE6 presents an urban, big-city feel with an opening sporting, a hip clean cleaned theme song and featuring hosts Smith and Hill dancing around each other. At one point, Smith even appears in a hoodie... The hosts are both outspoken about social and racial issues and unsurprisingly lean to the left in their views. Clearly, this show was created to appeal to liberal audience, urban and youthful, but three months into its history, SC6 doesn't seem to be hitting the mark. Recently, TheBigLead.com took a look at the show's rating and then found that in the first few shows came in strong enough, but as the weeks progressed, the support cratered. SC6, Jason Lis wrote after the show's March debut is down 20% compared to 2016 Sports Center reigning. The move to replace Lindsey Kazaki Sports Center with SC6 flies in the face of ESPN's constant claim that it absolutely does not have a liberal sports network and that it does not have a problem with liberalism on its airwaves. The protestations by Network Flax haven't stemmed the tide of center-right fans who are leaving the network and drove. Several recent reviews of sports fans seem to show the center-right fans are severing their ties to the 30-year-old cable sports network. In one case, a recent poll of sports fans found that Republicans have lost confidence in the Sports Channel brand name, and just last week, a review of viewers in swing states markets showed that center-right fans have stopped watching ESPN by large numbers. But SC6 is unlikely to bring these audiences back to the network. Indeed, it may tend to drive even more of them away. A May 6 piece by Breitbart Sports' Samuel Chai noted that NBC audience leaned towards liberals who exhibit a low voter turnout, and an ESPN is trying to regain its lost audience focusing on urban fans of NBA is not the path to regain a once-massive audience. If the ratings are any indication, SC6 is not saving ESPN from its downward spiral. I also have some facts for you. Which once again. Comes from Cheryl Atkinson. Who nobody could say is a conservative. From a Bernie supporter. Who counted from 1991 until election day. In November 2016. David Trump repudiated. Donald Trump repudiated and disavowed. David Duke or the KKK. No less than 55 times. In 15 public Occasions. But for Jamel Hill, Colin Kaepernick, we are with you, Jamel Hill. Rick Canton said, so you're glad you took time out of your busy NFL schedule. Him and 15 other people trying to stay relevant during the NFL season. Crazy compared to Ali for kneeling for rights already afforded. And another one, a radical unemployed quarterback who was 3 16 the last 19 starts sides with a ra- radical annoying TV host. So did we get an apology from Jamel Hill? It's a liberal one. My comments on Twitter express my personal beliefs. My regret is that my comment and the public way I made them painted ESPN an unfair light. My respect for the company and my colleagues remains unconditional. That's the picture. The tweet itself, so to address the elephant in the room, hashtag facts. She never should have done that, because I went to this feed. These are the nice ones. Nice cover for your employer. I bet they appreciate it. FYI, your personal beliefs are not only wrong, but further divide when USA needs to unite. You should also apologize to people you slandered. I didn't vote for Trump or HRC, but your comments were out of line. As a representative of ESPN... If dynamics were different, you'd be fired. Hashtag Cone, hashtag Kurt. Those were conservatives. I typed a bunch of other facts. You're a race hustler. You disparaged the POTUS when just a year ago you were disparaging people for disparaging the POTUS. This is everywhere. I saw it on normal shows. Nobody on ESPN today as of right now, which it's now 2 p.m. And of course, I've been podcasting for a while. Uh, it even addressed it. Mike and Mike didn't address it. First Take didn't address it. Stephen A didn't address it. I once again have to reiterate, Every American is afforded the right to have an opinion. Every American is afforded the right to go out on Twitter and say hateful spewing shit all they want. It's America. It's free speech. The problem I have with this is, A, it's not grounded in facts. There's no proof of what's in a person's heart. And as I've shown numerous times on this show, for Christ's sake, every Republican's a racist. Every Republican from the beginning of time's a Nazi. I mean, you've worn it out. So as a conservative independent, when you start spewing that shit, I just ignore you because it's just the easy low-hanging fruit. What it tells me is you have no way to win the argument. So you win the argument by saying, you're a racist, you're a Nazi. Secondly, this kind of conduct would get you fucking fired in a hot minute. If it happened under Barack Hussein Obama, my friends. You couldn't say this. Just ask Kurt Schillinger, Schillinger, ask mother, ask motherfucking big man, Mr. Dicka, De Bears. You couldn't say that. And during the time of Obama, there was no push of this much politics directed directly towards the president. It wasn't allowed. It just wasn't. They pushed social issues. I have two theories on why they do this. Theory one, they're trying curry favor to the popular vote. That That's what, what they're doing. They think it's going to help them. Number two, the show's failing. The network's failing. They're about to reorganize and everything. They made the decision to break up the number one show they have, which is Mike and Mike. They're about to be fucked because it's a countdown. They're giving out bobbleheads. And soon it won't exist anymore. And they did it as clickbait? Because I don't know why you think this is okay. And a direct assault on the President of the United States from a sportscaster, and she keeps her job. Remember, a woman got on an airplane said something that could be perceived as racist. By the time she landed, she was fired. Remember that people who wouldn't give a gay cake lost their fucking businesses. So I'm not even tuning in to ESPN anymore. Cause she was not fired. I'm not even going to watch Mike and Mike. Not watching it. Okay. I'll watch it on Mondays. Gotta watch it Mondays and Fridays. Mondays and Fridays is the only time I'll watch it. But Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm not watching it now. And when I used to do it for scores, I'm going to the NFL channel. Not going to watch ESPN because that's above and beyond. It's above and beyond. And you lefties don't understand. As you gnash your teeth about people calling Obama the birthers and the Muslim thing. That was a fringe. It was the lunatic fringe, a percentage of a percentage. This is everybody on the left. Everybody. You guys are fucking out of control, and you're not even grounded in fact. There's no proof of this. Pussy grab? Proof. Russia? No proof. Him a supremacist? No. He's not. Not everybody on the staff is a fucking white supremacist. What you you ran out of racist... So now you're going to white supremacists because alt-right didn't stick. But it's just a fucking smear. It's not truth. The American people see through it. So if her hopes was she was going to revive her SC6 show that nobody fucking watches, guess what, sweet pea? It ain't going to work. And coming from a person that used to listen to you and it was more than just a couple times and you used to be on in the morning... You're a fucking racist, Jamel Hill. You're a pot calling the kettle black. Cause you're racist as fuck. Not saying your buddy is, but you are. You're hateful and you hate white people. So you are what you hate. And when you are what you hate, you're about as important as a cloudy day. Let's go to military corner.
2: Clear, clear, clear. I ho, I not loud and bold. Your body, Ye- rollin and rollin'. Your you know? the enemy, take soul. early, early, early in the morning. in the See the enemy, take I, I got my baby in my, my, my back. Kill th- the enemy, bad. take your soul.
3: You know, I just listened to the play. I keep saying J- Jacobian and Smith it was Jacobian and Hill. God, why do I do the Smith thing? I'm always saying Smith on the show. Just because of a generic name. This article I was going to put in the last show, and I couldn't fit it in. But I think it's kind of interesting. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But... This came from Task and Purpose. This is Suicide Contagion. How the effort to combat veteran suicide may be making it worse. In May 2011, amid Barack Obama's troop surge, the U.S. Army 101st Airborne Division began leaving Afghanistan after a grueling year-long tour. By the end of the summer, the entire division had returned home to Fort Campbell on Tennessee-Kentucky border, greeted by a succession of parades and award ceremonies honoring the 101st sacrifice in some of Afghanistan's most volatile regions, where a total of 131 Screaming Eagles lost their lives and many more were wounded. Chests were adorned with medals, families reunited, alcohol flowed. It was a homecoming fit for a group of soldiers who had survived the storied division's single bloodiest deployment since the Vietnam War. I served as a combat medic with one of the 101st Airborne so-called Brigade Combat Teams, or BCTs, on that deployment. In Afghanistan, each of the four battalions of the BCT had been assigned its own area of operation in the country's south. All shouldered their fair share of fight to wrest the region from Taliban control. All endured the typical features of modern counterinsurgency, ambushes, IEDs, snipers, suicide attacks, extreme boredom. All suffered heavy casualties. I saw a lot of guys in my unit struggle intensely with the psychological ramifications of of that deployment. But as far as I can recall of the roughly 800 soldiers who served in Afghanistan with my battalion, not a single one committed suicide when we got back to Fort Campbell. That was not the case in one of our three sisters battalion, which experienced his first suicide soon after we got home. Several more quickly followed. News of each death would trickle down to us through the chain of command, often followed by classes on post-traumatic stress disorder, mental health treatment, and how to properly respond if you suspected one of your soldiers in your platoon was thinking of killing himself. Sometimes we'd overhear the gruesome details being discussed in the brigade chow hall, the unit had what we called a suicide problem, and despite the fact that their deployment had been almost identical to ours, everyone blamed the war. Why else would they be killing themselves? I didn't give the matter much thought until I started coming across stories of other military units experiencing a spate of suicides after returning from Iraq or Afghanistan. One of my task and purpose colleagues served as a Marine infantry captain in Fallujah, his unit lost a lot of men during the operation, and it has lost nearly as many to suicide the years since. There's also the well-documented case of the 2nd Battalion 7th Marine Regiment, or 2-7, which writer David Phipps chronicled in a series of articles for the New York Times. The Marine of 2-7, there were about 1,200 total returned from a bloody tour in Afghanistan in 08. By the time Phipps' last article was published in 2015, 14 had died by suicide. A number of that unit recently told me that the number is much more higher. Psychologists have long understood that suicidal behavior is infectious, that the urge to kill oneself can pass from one person to another, and in a recent study published in the journal JAMA Psychiatry was the first to conclude that military units are not immune to this phenomenon known as suicide contagion. The odds of suicide attempts among soldiers in a unit with five or more past-year attempts was more than twice that of a soldier in a unit with no attempts. The study authors wrote, adding that contagion can occur with varying degrees of impact in any type of military unit regardless of size. In other words, a soldier's suicide might trigger a sort of domino effect which could potentially ripple well beyond his circle of friends and colleagues. And this dynamic is not exclusive to units that serve on the front lines. Very interesting article. It goes very deep on this. If you'd like to read it, it's on task and purpose. But I kind of was taken back by this going, you know, there is a lot of truth to this. And it's long. I mean, it's a very long article. It has a whole bunch of Statistics that I won't translate here. But it's imperative, once again, I cover it on the show a lot, to get help. Get help. Don't try to gut it out. And I, I can only speak from a person that was very lucky in the 19 months of combat for the platoon that I led... I didn't go for the 19 months. I did the Afghanistan deployment. We didn't have any casualties. We had some injuries, but no casualties. We were really lucky. And I don't know, don't know if that, you know, would have been worse if we lost more people. But still within that group, one of the soldiers deployed again with the National Guard as a staff sergeant, and he committed suicide afterwards. So we eventually did have a casualty from somebody that served with us. It's kind of scary. During 9-11 commemoration, Bagram Air Base targeted by a suicide bomber. Five people wounded by a suicide bomber outside Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan on September 11th. Only Fox News reported this. The incident occurred just hours before service members and civilians gathered at the airfield to commemorate the 9-11 attack. In a statement, Operation Resolute Support stated that a small number of U.S. service member and Afghan civilians were wounded when a vehicle packed with explosives attempted to ram an armored convoy near the village of Kaleta Musabala. A U.S. official later told Fox News that the number of wounded totaled five, including a Georgian, Georgian soldier. Kind of surprised that didn't make the media, but they don't really care. ISIS fighters are flaunting their new favorite U.S.-made battle rifle and propaganda video. ISIS fighters are flying a modified variant of the FM-14 in a newly released propaganda video detailing the terror group's urban warfare tactics as it makes a last stand against U.S.-backed coalition siege to its Syrian stronghold of Raqqa. The video which shows armed drones, vehicle-borne IEDs, and other unusual armaments in action against Syrian democratic forces in the crowded thoroughfare of the city. Yet another example of U.S. military weapons and equipment ending up in the hands of the wrong fucking people. Fucking sad. Thanks, Obama! Good work there, buddy. The Army's first upgun strikers are headed overseas. The 2nd Cavalry Regiment will begin fielding the first of a new fleet of upgraded striker armor combat vehicles. Next summer, half of the regiment's new strikers will come equipped with a 30 millimeter Bushmaster cannon, which boasts a range of more than 9,000 feet. Far greater than the current M2 50 caliber gun or Mark 19 grenade launcher. Wow, that'll reach out and touch you. So they're taking the gun off the Bradley and slapping it there. Interesting. This one's funny. Five perfect birthday gifts for the mad dog who has everything. This is for Mattis. Ten thousand more troops. A war bride. Mattis fought a lot of war, but he's never known the sensual touch of a woman that we know of. It's finally time for the hard-charging general to get married and start churning out little mad dogs. A Television. Mattis didn't grow up with a TV, and apparently he still doesn't own one. But this won't be a normal television, because instead of movie and shows it, will just play Predator drone live feeds. (laughs) A knife hand sharpener and a new nickname. Several months ago, Mattis begged reporters to call him Jim, suggested the days of mad dog and chaos are over. But that's okay, because those nicknames are sort of boring at this point anyway. It's time for an upgrade. What's the best new nom de guerre for one of the most legendary military men alive? We welcome your suggestion. That guy is just a badass. And to our John Kelly, disrespect by a fucking Democratic representative, an exclusive statement to Fox News following the backlash, Guterres comments, Kelly had a simple message to the Democratic congressman. Put up or shut up. As far as the congressman and other re- irresponsible members of Congress are concerned, they have the luxury of saying what they want as they do nothing and have almost no responsibility. They can call people liars, but it would be inappropriate for me to say the same thing back to them as my blessed mother used to say, empty barrels make The moist noise. (laughs) Woo, man. These people just don't know who they're fucking with it. They're fucking with it. They're just fucking with the wrong people, folks. These people don't give a fuck and they don't care that you talk shit about them. You can tell Kelly don't give a shit about you. You're a fucking pandering person who wants all illegals to become legal just so you can have more people to speak spanish to you fucking racist to news and social media nuggets stop
0: now it's time for news and social media nuggets the crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind
6: Ball game on campus these days, and they call it PC. PC? Politically correct, and it's not just politics. It's everything. It's what you eat. It's what you wear. And it's what
11: you say. If you don't watch yourself, you can get in a buttload of trouble. For instance,
2: we have right see two. these girls? Yeah.
11: No, you don't. Those no, are women. You call them girls, and no. they'll pop your figs.
7: Save the whales. Daddy's yeah, in the military
2: now. No, no. 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 no sounds. No. Tom, I call
8: They find a world-threatening issue and stick with it.
3: You know, I'm conflicted on this. I don't want to get rid of the old news and social media nuggets, and I just love the new PCU. So I'm just going to play them both. The Eventually, I'm just going to phase and it into the PCU. PCU. So I think and it works better for you. news it's and social media it's nuggets, especially a <laughs> like
10: this.
3: pumpkin spice latte on white supremacy <laughs> and tough White House, according to <laughs> Feminist Group. <laughs> I'm not even reading it. <laughs> wow. Pumpkin here. Spice is, is I racist. Everyone I is can't even grasp with what is not <imitation> racist anymore. They're even calling black people racist. last night at the Emmys Antifa supporters Obama's climate change alarmist. The Obamas won an Emmy at the Creative of Hearts in <imitation> Hollywood. The real world was a liberal agenda you, as represented by CNN, the Obamas climate change drag queens and the women's party. CNN's Camus Bell won the award for the best unconstructed reality program the United Shades of America. Has, he, is, he has shown so much support for Antifa and left-wing violence in these weeks. At the awards ceremony, Bell thanked ENTV and Movies for showing that it, what it takes for diversity and inclusion to make America a better place. So at the event, Bell took a bullhorn and yelled, we covered that a couple of days ago. we move on to the next Um... On the first night of the awards, September 9th, presenter Bill Nye, the fake science guy, told the audience, I sincerely hope this year becomes a turning point and that we, as a nation, begin to address climate change. Vice Land at the Women's March won the short-form non-fiction and reality series. Megan Kurtz stated as her team accepted the award, pink will always be Trump's orange. Okay. Ava DuVernay, the creator of Black Lives Matter documentary, the 13th, made a speech when accepting an award. It's important that we stand up and be heard, she said, against the people who try to silence us. Why does the left always say that? Silence us. You're the people silencing everybody, you fucking morons. Drake queen RuPaul won for Outstanding Host for a Show. RuPaul Drag Queen. Has any of you ever seen this or Drag Race? Sorry. How is he the outstanding? What? The Handmade Tale and Saturday Night Live also racked up big wins. Melissa McCarthy went for her appearance on Sean Spi- of Sean Spicer, of course. Actress Alexis Bell won for a role in Handmade Tale and used her acceptance speech as a platform for change.org. Encourage people to sign up, speak up, and stay away. Not playing sound bites. They're fucking morons. Los Angeles Times. Berkeley braces for right-wing talk show host Ben Shapiro. Jonah Goberg does my talking for me. Berkeley braces for violent mob demanding heckler veto of mainstream. (laughs)
2: Lauren
3: Duca's in the frickin' news and social media nuggets. Here's one of her tweets. Pro tip, don't date anyone who doesn't identify as a feminist. Peter Dow retweeted it. Pro tip Do the exact opposite of what Lauren Duca says. <laughs> Lena Dunham. I hear all and see all. Among the unhinged actress Lena Dunham is vying for front row occupancy. The former creator and star of Girls series has tried to make a name for herself among leftists in a variety of ways. The media has papered over her inability to distinguish between truth and fiction. Dunham's most recent attempt last week involved telling the world that people around her, blah, 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 we covered it, yada, yada. On Thursday, Fox News reported that Dunham warned fellow airline travelers on an Instagram post that I hear and see all. Lena Dunham, watch out for me because I hear and see all. That's her tweet. Airline employees and travelers, beware, she's watching like a hawk. On Wednesday afternoon, the actress and girl's creator took to Instagram to share the short message from what appeared to be security gate at an unknown airport. I'm at the airport, and I think people know now, when I'm at the airport, they have to fucking watch out for me, because I hear all and see all. Yeah. Who is silencing who? Somebody tell me. Here's another proof. <laughs> Dating site to fill in filter millions of users by Planned Parenthood support. Yeah, one of the most popular dating apps is fill in, filtering its users by support for Planned Parenthood because a shared cause is sexy, even when it's America's largest abortion provider. On Monday, dating site and app OKCupid advertise a new profile badge to help users filter for Planned Parenthood support. And they show a picture. Who is silencing who? Somebody talk to me. Hollywood advertises Planned Parenthood t-shirt, United We Plan. Forget the American slogan, United We Stand, it's now United We Plan, at least according to Hollywood actresses and fashion models, embracing a new t-shirt, replacing America with Planned Parenthood. From model Carly Fla- Carly Closs to comedian Chelsea Handler, big names are unabashedly advertising a shirt reading United We Plan for Planned Parenthood Fundraiser that ends Friday. To top it off, shirts also picture an American flag logo. 25 bucks. Americans can purchase the shirt from Omaze, a company that sells exclusive merchandise to support nonprofits around the world. Okay. Hmm. And you can see them all tweeting it incessantly. I, once again, abortion's legal, but goddamn people, you're fucking sick. What it's like to be smeared by the Southern Poverty Law Center. I paid a professional price when the group attacked me in 2009. Now where it is? It's mud as a badge of honor. Richard Cohn, president of Southern Poverty Law Center, was a testified by the House Homeland Security Committee about threats posed by domestic extremist groups. The hearing scheduled for Tuesday has been postponed because of Hurricane Irma. As a black conservative who's been smeared by SPLC, I recommend against reinviting him. When Morris Dees and Joseph L. Levine Jr. started the SPLC in 71 it was needed and it had noble goals. In recent years, however, has become a tool of the radical left. And here is Tucker Carlson.
9: Carol Swain is a former professor at Vanderbilt University Law School. A few years ago, she dared to criticize the Southern Poverty Law Center, a group that is completely corrupt. She accused him of effectively becoming a hate group while claiming to fight against hate groups. The SPLC's reaction was predictable. No introspection of any kind. They denounced Swain as, quote, an apologist for white supremacists. Carol Swain just wrote about the experience in the Wall Street Journal. She says the group's attacks are a badge of pride for her. She joins us now. Hello. Carol Swain, thanks for joining us tonight. So when you saw that the Southern Poverty Law Center was calling you an apologist for white supremacy, what was your reaction to that?
7: Well, I was not surprised. Uh, I had criticized them first, and I was criticizing them because I saw that they were engaging in mission creep, that they yes. had lost sight of their original purpose, and they had started going after conservatives. At the time, it was immigration restrictionists. So I wrote a blog, uh, September 2009, and about six weeks later, my photograph, Uh, was in my local paper on the front page with a headline that I was an apologist for white supremacy.
9: Did your original piece say anything nice? So they retaliated. Well, it's it's almost unbelievable that they would do that, but I just want to be absolutely sure I'm not missing anything. Did you say anything nice about white supremacists in your piece?
7: Had nothing to do with white supremacists. There was a film that I reviewed. The title of the film was A Conversation About Race. And I gave it an enthusiastic uh, review because I felt that on college and university campuses that there was a side that was not usually heard in social science classes and that was the uh, perspective of whites who felt that they were being beaten up about racism. And so I endorsed the film and they used that as the uh, pretext to label me as a, an apologist for white supremacy Even though I had written at that point uh, two books on white nationalism.
9: Yeah, and not in favor of it, of course. Um, So, what was your. The whole thing is so crazy. I guess guess if you take three steps back, look, they're a corrupt group that exists to raise a lot of money for mostly well meaning but gullible donors. I get it. But what I'm shocked by is how many media organizations take them seriously, pretend that they're legitimate. Did you lodge a
7: complaint with them? Well, first of all, anyone that criticizes them publicly run the risk of being labeled uh, as a hater or being placed on hate watch or being mentioned in one of their articles. And so to get uh, uh, branded by them, all you have to do is criticize them. In fact, you yourself is at risk of being placed on hate watch.
9: Oh, I'm sure that's true. I wouldn't go there. But but to to call an African-American woman a white supremacist? I'm sorry to laugh, it's horrible, but it's also so ludicrous that why would anyone... An for white supremacy. Why
2: would
7: anyone take them seriously? I don't know. I mean, they have a lot of influence at universities. And the name, the Southern Poverty Law Center, it conjures up an image of this organization that is seeking to eradicate poverty, that's working on behalf of the damned Trotton totally false they do nothing really for the poor and so they have been able to amass you know millions of dollars with that image and what they do now is really pursue an ideological leftist agenda and they punish anyone who criticizes them
9: including you. Professor Swain thank you for telling us what happened You, I appreciate it
3: shocking how much power liberal groups get to smear people. Another one along the line we read last podcast. This one's pretty good. Why I don't use female pronouns for my transgender brother. Until I was in college, I went by Mike. When I found myself in social circles that included two mics, I opted for Michael just to minimize the confusion. Since then, the only person who still calls me Mike is my mother. I did have a supervisor back in the 80s who called me Mark for a year, but she was otherwise quite kind to me. It's a simple matter of common courtesy call somebody, someone by whatever name he or she chooses. Transgender activists have tried to latch on this simple social courtesy to insist on the use of specific preferred pronouns, which they argue is no more than an extension of the common courtesy. The pushback on this has largely been on the profusion of novel potential identifiers. He, his, she, her, they, theirs, exers, he's ah, blah, blah, blah. blah. The list is really endless, with individuals generating new pronouns almost every day. Some gen- English pronouns convey gender, but the complaints about the profusion of pronouns miss a far more important point of language that seems to have slipped under the radar, something that makes this far more than a matter of courtesy. and has to do with the nature of second-person and third-person pronouns in English, and it breaks it down. I'm not going to have an English class. This is a demand to affirm a falsehood. This isn't just an abstraction for me. At the age of 50, my brother informed our family that he identified as a female, where previously Glenn, he had his name legally changed to Jennifer. My father doesn't accept that his son is now a daughter, and still calls him Glenn and he. My mother tries to be more accommodating, but when she speaks together about Glenn, she tries to say Jennifer and she, but she has trouble keeping that language as it were straight. It's obvious from my use of language that I'm guilty of two great sins of transphobia and demean deadnaming. Deadnaming is a practice of calling a trans individual by his or her birth name. Whoa! I heard that one. I'm dead naming like a motherfucker on Bruce Fucking Jenner. Or rather, I don't believe it to be factually correct that my brother is now female, despite his use of artificial hormones and a legal name change. To call my sibling she is to concede a reality that I do not believe to be the case. I believe that human animals has only two sexes because it has two kinds of g- genetic producers. Give me a third human gemet and I'll entertain the possibility of there being a third sex. I understand that there are varieties of rare medical conditions that produce intersex individuals, and that fact has no bearing on the number of actual sexes. I do not believe that drugs or surgery can make a male into female or a female into male. Just a few years ago, that would have been a simple science. Today, it makes me a moral monster. And he goes on from there. I won't read the whole article. I thought it was really interesting because I just, yeah, yeah. These people are just fucking crazy. But now we go to college. Professor claims microaggressions reflect racist beliefs. A recent study conducted by six university professors suggests that microaggression statements made by white students reflect their racist beliefs. In their survey that they call this science, 33 black students. I rest my case. Notre Dame 9/11 memorial marred by anti-war graffiti. A conservative students at the University of Notre Dame were stunned to see the words "500,000 Iraqis murdered" chalked in front of the site they had reserved for a 9/11 memorial. The students erected the display anyway, leaving the chalk message in place, according to Young America's Foundation. Oh, it's a one-off, Tony. Mysterious man trashes American flags from 9-11 Memorial. Columbia University College Republicans walked out of class Monday to find a man removing their flags. A ROTC member recorded the incident and later replaced the flags with the help of several passerbys. Oh, that's just uh, anonymous banner. Condemn war on terror on 9-11 at Amherst. There is no flag large enough to cover the shameless, the shame of killing innocent people. I fucking hate you all. You can't leave anything alone. Not even 9-11. Understand, transgenders, Muslims, black people all died on 9-11. Just honor those 100 or 200 people out of the 3,000. Student government member resigns over complicity with conservatives. I don't need to read anymore. that That just says it right there. If he had to work with conservatives, he's being complicit. Where does he get that from? Washington, D.C., Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are being trashed right now because they worked with Trump. Who's the party that's obstructing to a level we've never seen? Me, teacher, me. Okay, Johnny. Democrats. And you're right. Cornell students, government demand repercussion for hate speech. Members of the Cornell University students assembled are calling for repercussions against a fraternity after one of its members was heard chanting, Build a wall! It's now hate speech, okay. A source who wishes to remain confidential, however, told Campus Reform that the student responsible for the chant is actually Hispanic and was joking. (laughs) What are you going to do? You're going to call him a white supremacist too, right? Okay. Well, we have white Hispanic now. That's now a classification for the media. Just happened a couple weeks ago on NBC News. Peter Williams. Good job, buddy. Gonzaga student government press issues call to resist DACA decision. Gonzaga University student body president is vowing to fight for DACA recipients on campus after Donald Trump announced the plan to revoke in six months. In a statement post to Facebook, Carlo Yuntilla Provides its peers with a list of resources to protest decision invoking the university's Jesuit tradition to challenge the notion that dreamers and immigrants are unwanted. <clears throat> and then, for one of the first times, we have a far right. Far right. Bishop Jackson calls for all Christians to leave Democratic Party. Bishop O. Walker Jackson Sr., Called on all Christians to lead the Democratic Party, Jackson is a graduate of Harvard Law School, just like our current President Barack Obama. This is a dated article. But unlike our leader, Jackson served in the Marine Corps and knows what it really means to serve your country. After law school, he was practicing attorney in Boston for 15 years, blah, blah, blah. 2009, he launched a national grassroots organization, blah, blah, blah. In his plea for Christians to make an exodus from the Democratic Party, Jackson refers to the party as a cult. And cites the following reason Pro-abortion Rejection of biblical family model and values Open hostility to anyone who expresses their Christian values Including Dan Cathy at Chick-fil-A And Olympic gold medalist Gabby Douglas Actions taken against cities and towns were displaying crosses And actions taken against anyone who invokes the name of Jesus During prayers at official events Never saw this one It's new And it must have been regurged But good for him I'm sorry that one, I have no problem with it. I got no problem with it. I don't see, as a Christian, how you can be a Democrat. I don't understand that. I don't say you have to be a Republican, because I don't think they're the most religious group in the world. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't know how you can be pro-life or uh, pro-death. I don't I don't understand that. Singer slams Hollywood for pushing abortion, Planned Parenthood. In a recent interview, MRC Culture, Kenya Jones... ...of the Pussycat Dolls. This astounded me. Describe Hollywood push for abortion as show, showing how evil our world has become. Besides telling her own fight against Planned Parenthood, she revealed other personal stories about what happened when young women in the entertainment industry refused abortion. In 2003 and four, Kaya served as one of the lead singers for Pussycat Dolls, a popular girl band, blah, blah, blah. A supporter of Trump and the military, Kaya made headlines last month for a tribute to the armed forces of the new song, What the Heart Don't Know. In August, Kaya also made clear when she stood on abortion on social media, she criticized Hollywood for pushing abortion. Hollywood Elites pushing eating disorders, sex drugs, and abortion on young women in the entertainment industry. Hashtag confess your unpopular opinion. Good for her. I'm gonna look that song up and play it on the next podcast. Couldn't find it today. But the rest of the Hollywood crowd is this. Can you hear Jim Carrey talk like a fucking moron? And Wyclef, yeah, kill
1: Trump. But if we don't, then there'll be another, you know, and we may have to struggle like other civilizations have, like you know, people did during the Tsar, and things like that. You know, I mean, we we may have to struggle, you know, because that we deserve it, frankly, because our culture, so much of our culture, is being held back and stonied by greed. I mean, everything in our culture seems to have behind it some uh green motivation, uh, profit motivation that, that keeps us from going forward, keeps us from having alternative food, keeps us from you know learning new things and from good schools and all those things. It, it just is it's an incredible thing that we're training people in every really single direction all around the dial, and we can sum it up to greed as well. You know, that's why the You're Republican high. Party can't do a damn thing. You know, Trump is a fucking imbecile, and and I'm I'm kind of glad he is because if he was somewhat efficient, he'd actually been passing some of this, some decent. of this sadism yeah. that, that passes his legislation. Right. You know, so because he's in crazy, that, that has slowed him down. His I own, swear to God, I, I don't like him. System. Yeah, I don't like him. Right. I, mean, I think he's really, you know, poisonous, but you know, an egomaniac. But I, but I I know that there's another side to the story and the balance of everything that is keeping, you know, people like Paul Ryan, you know, from uh, taking everybody's healthcare away. Or, you know, uh, you know, passing initiatives that are, you know, of Right. You know? Cruel. Cool. Cruel. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool yeah. Donald Trump, he won the
10: competition. Clinton, she put up a competition, Bernie Sanders, he was taken from the competition, y'all should have voted for me, hey. if I was president, yeah, a man say he don't build a wall, and have Mexico pay for it all. I called up my Mexican friends. You see, why Wyclef, we ain't gonna pay for shit. And there's a riot every week. And the people on the street. Everybody, man, they living on the edge. You could. What if Martin Luther stayed in the room, never stepped foot in the balcony? What if they had a bulletproof car instead of a drop top for Kennedy? Malcolm did the speech. What if I sat amongst the congregations? When the boys give me two hands in my pocket, five shots of the assassins children ain't nothing new under the sun what if i had put blank in marvin gate's father's gun what if y'all knew the truth before sending your kids to why i told you them boys don't care about iraq they care about that oil
3: yeah that's nice that's nice Right a little song about killing the potus okay okay to non-college shit humans have 27 instinct distinct excuse me Emotional state study finds. It used to be six, but now we have 27 emotional states. I think I just go between happy and I want to kill somebody. That's pretty much... If you asked Stephen Florida, I think that's how I was when you knew me. This one is utter fucking bullshit. I'm protesting. I'm going to whitehouse.gov and I'm going to write a fucking petition. Sleeping with your dog can lead to a better night's rest. Study finds: Are you fucking stoned? I have two fucking huskies. That stomp the stomp that they do a fucking dancing horse on my balls when they're turning around. How, no, no, no! That's bullshit. This one cracked me the fuck up. Cops: Female drug suspect, 20, had loaded handgun in a body cavity. Yeah, it was in. Wait for it. Her vagina. Is it 380? It weighs 13.4 ounces and 5.6 inches long. I don't know what else you're putting up that to make that work. That's fucking gross. Photographer explains how CBS uses color adjustments to make Steve Bannon look bad on 60 Minutes. Look it up on YouTube. Uh, Duke, Duke is his name on his video YouTube page. Basically breaks it down. CBS color adjustment Bannon's shots to make his eyes and lips red by increasing the level of saturation. The result is curtains that are a bright orange behind Bannon than they are in Charlie Rose's shot. Rose's shot was made cooler to make the host's makeup more subtle. Duke then adjusted the interview lighting, removing Bannon's redness and Rose's coolness. The result is natural-looking Bannon As author Ann Coulter pointed out, these type of mainstream media tricks aren't done on Fox News. Hence why the conservatives look better on the channel. And he breaks this down, man. I want to talk a little bit today about the color correction and grading and how it can be used to make people look bad. This is still framing of Steve Bannon, and he breaks it all down. If you take a look at Charlie Rose's shirt, it's about 13 unit of blue from neutral, which means they graded it into a cooler shot. That does a couple of things. It makes his makeup look less clownish. Da 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 da. Now I'm going to do Charlie what they did to Steve. I'm going to kick up the saturation, the red and the orange, and I'm going to increase the contrast. So here are the two shots before and after, before and after. And here's what the pictures would look like if they were graded similarly. That doesn't surprise me. That really does not surprise me one fucking bit that they do that. It doesn't. It just doesn't. I mean, I've shown on the show, when I was really doing breakdowns of media bias, not because I'm supporting any politician, but you go back to the earlier podcast, folks, it's it's the images. If you really consciously look at the images of Hillary and the images of Trump on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, MSDNC... Hillary was softer, a better profile shot. Trump was made to look mad, angry, crazy. If you went to Fox, Trump was made to look statuesque, more presidential. Hillary was made to look like the wicked witch of the left. The media does it. That's the subtle bias. Because understand, body uh, non-verbal communicators are way higher on what we receive on things than what we hear or or um, the person actually says it's how you frame it we already proved in the election never said I want to send back all Mexicans because they're murderers a that's what the media spliced it to be because it fit their narrative they hated it but you never said that If they would have done it for Barack Obama, what he said after Charlottesville, they didn't say the beginning that much. They didn't say the end. They played the sentence I talked about on this show that was fucking horrible. He never should have said. There were some good people down there. That's a sentence he never should have said. You take the rest of it in entirety, he's not siding with white supremacists. But when you just play that one bite, we got you. And that's what the media does. Look at every picture of Sarah Palin on MSNBC and CNN and tell me they ever give her a good picture. That's what they're selling. It's the subtle biases. They know that they can hammer all they want, say it, but most people have it in the background. They're not really watching. When I was in a hotel room and I used to be a cable news freak, I really wasn't watching. I was listening. But when I looked up and I saw the little glimpses and I caught the pictures and I caught that on the phone, Hillary Clinton, a glaring, beautiful photo that's a little photoshopped. he has got good makeup on, on a phone with Trump, a crazy photo with his hair all fucked up. That's what MSNBC used to do all the time on Morning Joe. It's their game. And we close with a horrible thing. And I want to spend some time on this because I think it's becoming to a point in our country that's really dangerous. I understand Antifa looks cool to people like Patrick who's a uber-lip. I understand to Paige the unbelievable hate she has for Trump. Anything can go sometimes. But folks the bias that's coming out of Google, Microsoft, Apple, we've covered on the show, from Google Analytics to what they push out to your Android phone, and we talked about how Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, punishes conservative thought, promotes liberal thought, ISIS can be all over the place. But if your SPLC is a hate group, your site gets taken down. Just this week, Hope Hicks, a new director of communication, was suspended for Twitter. They closed her account. So she couldn't speak. Never happened for anybody on the Obama team. But if you look at YouTube, because I do a lot, I get a lot of the sound bites I'm grabbing is from YouTube. Got me a little downloader that automatically converts it to MP3. I edited it out. That's how I play. The whole Ezra Klein shit was a YouTube video. It took me about a half hour to go through everything. I'm watching, I'm editing, blah, blah, blah. So, Paul Joseph Watson sent out this morning a tweet. He's in my feed. He's conservative. He usually pulls up some crazy shit. For you, Moonbats, I have Nicole Wallace, Katie Turr, I have Lauren Duca, I have all the hate. Charles Blow, yeah, he's on my shit. I mix the left, far left, far right, everybody. The tweet was this video depicting a child being hanged is fully monetized and YouTube is promoting it right now. They have added it to its trending section. Why saw child? But it's a white child. With a black child watching him hang the white child and on the back end of it he does this diatribe.
11: Equity and equality. The end result we all the ones that don't want to live in misery, that is, desire. Now, Naturally, we all black and white are scat and fruit or are malicious. Here are a few examples. Emmett Till, August 28th, 1955, Mississippi, pulled out of his house in the middle of the night in front of his mother who had to watch her son be taken from her on the sidelines for little to no reason at all worth murdering a 14-year-old boy. Castrated, mutilated, but also documented they used to see Corey Ali Muhammad black on white Philando Castile white on black now these things never come to or remotely ever remain in the public eye and the youth is never inspired to take a stand to make a difference so I will speak for them the youth that is the ones full of innocence the ones inspired by the things around them to matter I can go on forever about the fact that murder is murder whether you're black or white You should always feel free to voice your opinion but to act out on these rational thoughts in every shape or form is disgusting you cannot as black or white call yourself the supreme race when moved out of your comfort by the opposition's color their skin color that is no form of being or demonstrating being a supreme being if you are a supremacist be unmoved by the opposition remain unscathed in the comfort of your own home in your own realm Demonstrate care for the youth's future, white or black, black or white. Are you willing to risk your child's future due to your own bigotry? The choice is yours, but your child will not stand for the hate. This generation will be loved, nurtured, heard, and understood.
3: I want you to go look at it. He is tentacions spelling, X-X-X-T-E-N-T-A-C-I-O-N-S. I want you to tell me, well, let's just do it this way. Answer me this question. I'm going to play the Jeopardy theme, and I want you to tell me if this would be tolerated if the person was white, the white little boy was watching, and a black little boy was being hung. Hey, uh, you need a little more time? Just think it out. Hey, remember, Chicago was racist. Okay, I, I think you're pretty smart to know that that is, uh. No! That's a fucking no. You could never do that. And I don't care what he's trying to say. Let the hate die. Literal statement on YouTube. This is the stuff that was happened 60 years ago. White people are the worst race in the world. Taste your own blood. That was in the comment section. You you ain't going to have a hard time finding this because... Because YouTube's pushing it. They're pushing it. They're monetizing it instantly. It has had 7 million views. 7 million. And most of the comments are African Americans saying it's okie fucking dokie My question is... Why in the fuck would the parents let either one of those boys participate in this? What the fuck is wrong with the director that did this kind of shit? And for you lefties who believe the white race is the worst race in the world, even though I don't know anybody that was ever fucking here during slavery, wasn't here during the Civil War, never owned a fucking slave, don't give a flying fuck, served in the military, and most of my leaders were African Americans, I don't know what your white privilege is about, because I never had fucking privilege because I lived in a fucking poor house. Tell me how this improves America. Tell me how this is a statement that we need to be always reminded of the Civil War, of fucking Jim Crow lynching the KKK, tear down all the statues because America's a fucking... How is that improving America? How? And how is America so fucked up but a black president was elected twice by a plurality... Riddle me this, Batman. Why is this acceptable? Because I can't find a single reason that says this is good. It worked for him. He got clickbait, and he just made a whole bunch of money with a racist representation that somehow most of the Internet thinks is okay. Okay. But how is this whole agenda you're on from BLM to Antifa to the Women's March? How is this helping America at all? How is it moving America forward one step? And how is Hillary's book going to help anybody heal? It's some fucking sick Shit. That stuff still got me pissed off. Big time pissed off. So no lighter fare today. And this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with your family and friends. Send comments by email at f-o-p-p-o-d-c-a-s-t at gmail.com. FOP. Podcast at gmail.com. You can get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, Tune Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Make sure to check out the Flyover Politic webpage at F O P P O D C A S T dot com. Foppodcast.com. It's a theme. There you can see feeds of the show, links to our Facebook page and to email us. Also, you will see a link to every episode on the episode release page and my blogs on the blog page. The next podcast will be the nineteenth, which is a Tuesday. My wife will be out of town, I will be hand solo, and I'll also be off. So by noon that day, you should have another podcast feeding to your phone, computer. I don't know if people use iPods anymore. I don't have a MP3 player at all. It's kind of weird. I hope all of you have a good rest of the week and a fantastic weekend as we always end on the show. Disconnect from your shit. Enjoy your family while they're in front of you, because once again, this is a short ride. Soon it'll be over. And please, 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 root for the Green Bay Packers and the Oregon Ducks this weekend. Big games. Oregon's going to Wyoming. The Packers got to go down to Atlanta, where they are embarrassed just last January or February. I don't remember when it was, but it was ugly in the NFC Championship game. I thank you all for your support and patronage, and all of you, please tune in next podcast for more fun and exciting craziness that is our political world. Thanks for listening, everybody. The the Take care. Let the
2: bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Ah!